This is Female Focus with Audio Technica. Hi Alice, how are you doing? I'm great, how are you doing? How's the lockdown treating you? <laughs> yeah, it's okay. It's like, I'm always just saying good days and bad days, it's all I can think of to say. It seems to just be the general sentiment that everyone's experiencing. Yes, I think you're absolutely right. It is a bit like that. I'm hoping for some positive news at some point. I don't know what that would be exactly at this point, but um, you know, just any news <laughs> would be nice, wouldn't it? <laughs> Any change, any shift. Yeah, <laughs> that would be nice, wouldn't it? So obviously, because uh, um, you're a music producer and a remix artist and a writer, well, a songwriter, mm-hmm. are you still able to do all of that at home? Yeah. <laughs> that's <laughs> Sorry, good, that's a really short answer. No, no, it's good, because um, I thought you were going to say that, because, but it doesn't obviously mean that people are always feeling creative just because they've got time, I suppose, does it? No, I think a lot of people have been struggling with motivation, um, including myself. It's not been, it's not been ideal. I think I naively thought when the lockdown first kicked off, because I was actually already in lockdown before the national lockdown because my housemate had symptoms. Mm-hmm. Um, they've since recovered and they're fine. Okay. But, um, but it was one of these things where I was like, well, I was already working from home. So I thought, well, I've got everything here. I'm sure it will be fine. But honestly, I had no real grasp on just how much um, the the ability to leave the house uh, dictated my motivation. Because for me, I have to get things done before I leave. Yeah. <laughs> and, if it, and, you know, so it's like, oh, well, I have to leave at six to be in Central for seven in order to meet with somebody or hang out or whatever. Um, which means I have to get certain things done before I go. And not having that incentive anymore created some unexpected disruption. Mm. So, mm. But by and large, it's actually been okay. Like yeah. it could have been a lot worse. I, I mean, the reality is I am well set up to work from home. So, yeah, so I'm still making stuff and tootling along and I'm just sort of trying to give myself a little bit of grace so that on the days where I'm finding it a real struggle to focus or mental health just feels so much worse than usual, mm. that I just stop. I just, I just stop trying and getting frustrated with myself because I can't get to where I want to be, either psychologically or creatively. So. Yeah, I think, you know, it comes to a point for everyone. You're only human. Um, you know, you can, it's okay to take a break, isn't it, every now and then and not be 100% productive all of the day. Mm. Yeah, I think a lot of a lot of freelancers in particular struggle with that, with that, with that being kind to yourself and allowing yourself to take breaks because essentially what we do is we live an endless to-do list yeah. that just keeps being added to. And, you know, you kind of try to get into a habit of celebrating victories, but there's always more to do. So if you, if you struggle to kind of slow down or um, kind of have good work boundaries, already which I mean technically I do I've been freelancing for a long time but I still I still sometimes just get absorbed in projects and then suddenly it's 10 hours later and I'm like oh um <laughs> yeah, where did this time go, go? To, yeah I probably should go to bed and it and it's kind of wonderful sometimes and sometimes it is because it's like evidence of a vocation really when you can get that absorbed in something but um but equally it's not necessarily particularly good for your health <laughs> no because <laughs> you forget to do things like wind down before you go to bed and so you just kind of climb into bed and expect sleep to come and your brain is still just basically doing the can-can like la 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 <laughs> so yeah so it's, it's 
taught me a few things about myself and my self-discipline at large, I think, mm. so far. Okay. And in terms of, um, you know, producing, doing remix work and being a top-line writer, which came first for you? Um, remixing, actually. Um, but it was sort of an experiment, as most of my career has been. Um, I did a little remix for my former label for another um, artist on the label because they were struggling to find remix artists who were actually still letting the track sound something like the track rather than completely transforming it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that sometimes that's part of the joy of remixing because um, you get to you get to basically take apart a track and um, and rebuild it in whatever way you see fit, which is tremendous fun. Mm-hmm. Um, especially because you don't have the the pressure, the creative pressure of whatever your own standards are for that song because you didn't write it. So, um, so yeah, so there's a lot of freedom in that. So I tested it. And then um, about a year ago, a bit longer now, I think, I did. Um, I wanted to do another one because I wanted, because I found the first one so enjoyable. So I basically um, had a chat with another band of, who were friends of mine uh, called Party Fears. And, uh, and I really loved their track. And I basically said, can I remix it, please? And they said yes, and so I I started doing it more, um, and I've got like I've got another couple lined up at the moment, and it's it it is just it's just pure creativity with a lot less pressure. Mm. Um, but the top lining kind of really kicked off this year as um, as a part of me expanding my skill set into other areas, really, just because part of working in the music industry a lot of the time people don't realise just how many income streams a lot of musicians have and that's actually how we stay afloat is by kind of basically almost like working lots of different kinds of jobs um and those active and passive income streams are what make up our whole income mm-hmm. so um the top lining is kind of just really kicking into gear this year and um again it's terrific fun but it's a different kind of fun because it feels a lot less intuitive and a lot more intellectualized um, but I think that's probably also just to do with my own attitude towards those two skill sets in general. Like my my production style is very is very heavily based on a sense of um, of instinct uh, as well as by synesthesia, and so it does feel very intuitive. Whereas singing is something I've been doing since I was very young, <laughs> and yeah. uh, and so it feels more like like a craft, like a skill or an intellectual exercise. Mm. so I think it's probably just reflective of my attitude towards those two things mm. and I know we have to talk about this so this is your um YouTube series pop not pop so you start with this confession don't you you are a musician and a producer but you hate <laughs> pop music so <laughs> you know you're just putting it out there that's fine but um so what is it about what made you start this series and um made you want to talk about this subject well um and it's why do you hate pop music, I guess? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> why do I should I have started with that. <laughs> let's start there. Okay. Yeah, let's start. The most controversial bit. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I hate pop music because I find so little variety in it these days. Yeah. I'm someone who, I crave variety. Um, and I don't know if it's, I don't necessarily think it's just a generational thing. Um, but also, Part of that is to do with the fact that I am neurodiverse, I have synesthesia, 
And so I can see the music at the same time as, as hearing it because that's the synaptic crossover that I have, uh, which is the most common one. Mm. I have it quite mildly, but it's there. And, um, and so I can, like, it's basically like if you walk into a gallery and you're looking at, uh, like, not even like one person's collection of work, but like a mixed exhibition, and every, uh, every painting looks the same. You're just like, what is this? What have I paid to come into? I've yeah. been ripped off. And that is pretty much how I feel about pop music because there are like, there are a handful of signature styles now that seem to make it onto the majority of uh, particularly kind of what I call manufactured pop music. So music where artists are often taken on board by, uh, by big labels um, and cultivated from a marketing perspective, not necessarily because they have honed a craft. Yeah. And I understand that that is just part of the marketplace of the music industry now, and I operate within it. So it's kind—it's of, not really like me sitting on my kind of sitting on my high horse and saying it shouldn't be so. The reality is that it is so, but it does only seem to produce certain kinds of music that those big conglomerate labels believe will sell. And we have kind of been socialised along the way as music has evolved to just keep digesting the same content at that point because it hits certain it's some of it's science as well you know there is there is a reason why the four chord structure is so popular yeah <laughs> and i use it myself and it's to do with what our brains kind of gravitate towards and consume regularly but unfortunately the difficulty with that is we we are just recycling the same stuff and that lack of diversity within sound means that we are not act- we're only really getting artists that are mostly just flashes in the pan or artists that have the most incredible marketing vehicle and that becomes the thing that propels their career rather than their art mm-hmm. or any sense of pushing the envelope or exploration um, in different directions. And I think, you know, I've kind of read so many articles about things like, oh, we're not, we're not seeing a new Bowie, we're not seeing a new Prince, we're not seeing, you know, these these kind of radical artists anymore. Uh, but this is the reason why. It's because we have, we've created a marketplace that, that just eats itself. Yeah. Um, and so that's one of the reasons why I hate pop music. But the problem is, is that I like, deep down, I actually, I was raised on pop music. I was, um, you know, the Spice Girls were my first major landmark. Mm-hmm. And that was, we're talking about pop music that had the potential to shift paradigm to change attitudes to start kind of you know an entire generation of young girls self-worth <laughs> yeah um but we're not really seeing that as much anymore except probably in kind of some um circles around um basically artists who are people of color and artists who are queer mm-hmm. and i i find that most of them pop the act, music that actually excites me is coming from those quarters um, because they're still pushing it in different directions. But equally, the majority of it is still basically just boring the crap out of me. And so part of me as a writer has always wanted to write to fill a gap, to, um, to write what I can't find in the marketplace. And so as, I, um, as my career segued out of folk music and into more contemporary listening I realized that I was gravitating towards pop books again and I've always been a massive fan of of 80s pop music 
Um, there was a lot of that in the house when I was growing up. And also um, later in my 20s, there was a bit of a gap and I returned to it and I realized just how brilliant and powerful those arrangements were and started analyzing them for myself and looking at the big voices that I absolutely adored, like um, like Annie Lennox, who's a, another touchstone for me. Mm. And I just thought, this is the kind of, this is the pop music I want back in the marketplace. So I basically took, I started kind of taking those influences and writing in that direction. And that's how my last EP, Liminal, came to be. Um, and then when I was looking at what am I going to do next, I thought, well, I could just release another EP. And that was kind of what was expected. Um, but actually, I'd written a lot of music um, in the time between the start of Liminal recording and finishing it as a record. It took about two years, which was way too long. And so I had, I had, I was building enough material for an album. And so I thought, well, okay, why don't I create a project around this album um, and basically share the writing and the creation of the album as I'm creating it? So much, so much kind of documentary style stuff around album making happens in a retrospect. So the album is made, and then you see how it was made. Um, but I thought it would be quite fun to do it the opposite way around so here we are Mm. and um, a lot of what you said obviously in terms of modern pop songs it sounds like you know people are following a recipe and they get a cake which is the same and looks the same to you with synesthesia at the end of it and a lot of that's production style that kind of thing what about in terms of I guess lyrical content because you reference you know the 80s and some of the things they may have been singing about then is there something that you wish in kind of terms of what people are actually singing about and writing about that you wish was more, you know, prevalent in modern pop music in terms of maybe issues oh. and subjects? <laughs> I'm guessing yes. it's yes. <laughs> <laughs> that was an enjoyable question. Thank you. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, something I referenced in the very first episode of Pop Not Pop is the fact that people were writing about things that were happening around them. Like sex, romance, relationships is very much prop, like pop bread and butter. Because yeah. pop music came out of, you know, kind of early rock and roll music um, in the 50s and 60s. And that was all geared towards the sexual revolution. And so, essentially, that was rebellious. But now, we have been singing about sex and romance and relationships for a long time. And although we still, it's still like a universal thing that everyone can relate to, and I write about it a lot myself, um, I would love to be writing more about issues that are happening around me and I think we sort of think these days that that kind of writing falls into protest songs and so it only really lives in in the realm of of, of folk music or it's kind of it's things like rap and grime commentary on social kind of norms failing um, people who fall into minorities and things like that but in the 80s, people were singing about a lot of stuff. You know, there was, um, there were, I would talk about Michael Jackson singing about racism and UB4C singing about Thatcherism and um, the Eurythmic singing about capitalism and Kate Bush singing about sexism. And I feel like there's only, there are only, because the whole industry is now geared towards playing it safe to keep itself financially structured, there aren't as many artists who are like MIA who are necessarily willing to really push into more global riskier themes um 
um, like interestingly, I think MIA is one, Prisoners Not Here is another one, um, both, you know, rap artists who I absolutely love. And I wish there were more pop that was embracing, pushing in those sorts of directions. Mm. Um, one of the things that comes up um, or has come up as I've constructed this album on the internet through the Pop Not Pop series is that, yes, I am thinking about heartbreak, but I'm think, trying to think about it from different angles. Um, like I thought, I think a song called Bad Code that's about the patriarchy and about my experience of being an intersectional person to a woman, but also a queer woman and constantly hitting up against glass ceilings. And that was happening before I even entered the music industry. That's happened in every single industry I've worked in. I've experienced sexism and harassment. And either of me or I've witnessed it happening to other people. Mm. And so I, that was something that I'd been, I just hadn't necessarily felt like I was, I was ready to write about it for a long time. But then the mood took me. And, um, and I wrote Bad Code. And I feel like it's one of the best songs I've ever written. And I think it's important sometimes to not be afraid to really write what's inside of you rather mm. than being so concerned about people pleasing or about pleasing your audience that you stop taking risks. Mm. So, and that, that attitude has rolled over into other songs. Like there's a song called Perpetuer, which is about kink and, there's a song about love and mental health, which is called Ready. And those are risky themes to be writing about. I mean, mental health probably less so now because the dialogue around it has shifted so much more positively. Um, but kink? Who writes about kink? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. No one. <laughs> no one, I guess, yeah. No, no one. As far as I know, no one's kind of looking at, at that. And as opposed to just singing, oh, baby, I'd like some sex now. Mm-hmm. Singing about... What it's like to be, yeah, exactly. Justin Bieber all the way. Um, <laughs> is, yeah, no one, as far as I know, is singing about, maybe, maybe Janelle Monet, but like no one's singing about kind of power within kind of sexual relationships and how it's, it's kind of the old. But I think there's an adage that's attributed to Oscar Wilde, but no one actually knows where it comes from, which is um, everything is about sex except sex, which is about power. Okay. Um, and that's essentially part of what ties into kink and what we um, what we kind of gravitate towards and make sexual so kind of psychological associations with, and where that can become like a positive, well balanced dynamic within like a consenting relationship. Mm. Um, so yeah, as far as I know, no one's thinking about that. So <laughs> I think um, basically. I'm glad that I've started taking this attitude because I feel like it's not just it's not just kind of satisfying me and the writer inside me who gets frustrated at the lack of variety in topic, um, but also it's it's pushing me as an artist to create better songs as well. I think it's quite symbiotic. Mm. And you mentioned MIA and um, Janelle Monet. Are there any other recent yeah. artists, even in recent years, not even just right now, that um, are sort of you feel pushing the boundaries a little bit or that have impressed you a bit more? Um, I mentioned Princess Nokia as well, who I think is, has done that exceptionally well. Yeah. Um, Christina and the Queens, I think, sincerely does not get enough credit. Yeah, I think you're quite similar actually with your music. I mean that in a complimentary <laughs> way, not a copycat way. Oh, 
I like it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you. I take that as very high praise. Um, I mentioned um, recently to uh, somebody else that um, she's the only person in pop music who has consistently held my attention for about four years now. Mm. Um, and that's because, well, because at one, I think she just does what she wants. I think she's got clearly got an excellent relationship with her label and they trust her vision, which is something that I see so rarely anywhere in the pop landscape these days. Mm. Um, and singing in another language but, and still being successful, that must be a bit of a panic station <laughs> for some record labels, I guess. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah. And, and actually, I, I adore that. I think that's brilliant. Um, I think it, it's really, it, it really opens opens up a lot of stuff because I think the only um before that as far as I'm aware the only association I would make of artists successfully singing in other languages were Latin artists Mm -hmm. singing usually in Spanish and having success usually in places like America um because Spanish is usually the taught second language there Mm. but yeah to see her playing with languages and I'm I'm someone who's a geek for words as well yeah. So to kind of the fun of like translating lyrics both forwards and backwards and kind of sense, like seeking out the nuances in different languages um, and also like the meanings behind metaphors and, and idioms and things like that. I love that. That's very much my jam. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so I think she's I think she's absolutely she's blazing a, a trail wildly, not just artistically, but in terms of. Uh, gender nonconformity in terms of sexual orientation nonconformity. Um, she's basically kind of taken heteronormativity and smashed it to pieces. Um, and I think there are a few other artists who are also kind of moving in that direction and have been for a while. I think Troy Sivan is another one who has managed to break some of the mainstream, mm-hmm. but I sense that there's a struggle there. Um, I'm not sure what the kind of the, the centre of that is whether it's like a personal thing or to do with the people like his team or how he's been advised from a PR and marketing perspective but you know I I, I almost want more success for him yeah. um, but I think one of the things that I find a little bit sad as well is that some of the queer artists that we identify as queer and in the mainstream now they weren't necessarily able to be open and out as queer when they first came onto the music industry scene um, you know, people like Lady Gaga and Halsey only came out later. Frank Ocean also only came out later. Mm. And while I think it's brilliant that they came out at all and people have to come out in their own time, and I understand that, I think, unfortunately, one of the things that becomes a barrier is when openly queer artists can't necessarily get a foot in the door because they get pigeonholed as queer before they necessarily get acknowledged for whatever artistic yeah. um, stuff they're bringing to the table. And I mean, it's it's a risk that I kind of took when I dropped my first record because the question was asked, do you want to be known as a queer artist? And I was like, and I'd never thought about it. But in reality, I thought, well, I'm not really going to be able to hide it because I'm out of the closet and I'm not going back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that was kind of my call. But at that point, I knew that the reason that question had been asked is because there was a risk that I would be pigeonholed and I would be passed over on on yes kind of like another level because of being out as a queer person and being non-gender conforming 
Mm. So, it's hard, isn't yeah, it? Because it's not but, your thing, is it? That's just something about you. It doesn't say anything about your music style, your production technique or anything. <laughs> no, just nothing madness. at all. <laughs> nothing at all. I mean, the funny thing is I've never been afraid of representation because um, because I, I've just been very aware that I didn't get enough of it when I was growing up. There was no one like me anywhere. Mm. I didn't have anyone to look to. And it was one of the reasons why it took me so long to come out is because I had no, like, I had no points of reference to be able to look at in, in either A, society or B, the media at large and say, oh, there I am. Mm. And so it took a long time. Um, and yes, it is frustrating. I mean, the ironic part is that um, because of the fact that I don't present in a gender conforming way, it does sort of neutralize me from a personal interaction perspective. Um, basically, it means that I get less conversations where people are speaking to my boobs rather than to my face. Oh, lovely. Which, <laughs> I know, which when I presented in a more gender conforming way, when I had longer hair or when I dressed in a more femme way. Mm. Um, that was part of the struggle is kind of being like, eh, eyes up here, buckaroo. Mm. Um, but so I don't necessarily have to deal with that as much anymore. But it's brought other challenges. But, mm. you know, um, it's it's kind of it's not like a boohoo thing. It's just a reality. Yeah. Um, yeah, you don't you're definitely not moaning about it. It's just a topic that's it's kind of there, isn't it? So whether you people want mm. to acknowledge it or not, it's kind of a thing as much as it people is. calling female DJs or producers just that female at the beginning they're, they're just yeah. they're just female but they have to put that at the beginning as well don't they yeah I think it's a shame that even after all this work we're still treated like a novelty I know at the end of your pop not pop series um you're going to do you're obviously working on a 12 track album so it's a patreon powered project and you yeah. said you've been on that for about four years so um mm-hmm. can you just tell us a bit about that um about patreon and how that works yeah, I'd love to. I mean, um, I think a lot of people are familiar with crowdfunding now mm-hmm. and they understand the basic of how it works. And all it is essentially is to rearrange the order of the exchange that we are used to in a marketplace. Like we're used to money being paid and then you get an object. Um, but the object has to be made before you can pay. Whereas crowdfunding switches that. So you pay, the object gets made, and then you get it. Mm-hmm. So... It's just a kind of moving around of that order. And um, and so when I talk about Patreon, what I describe it as is essentially a, um, it's a, it's a crowdfunding campaign that never ends. Um, but it has become so much more than that. Patreon is just really one platform, but it's the platform that I've found to be the most effective in terms of being able to build a community around my projects mm-hmm. rather than me kind of probably going into debt trying to make things and then flog them to people um, which is the traditional model so especially for independent artists or labels Um, so it's been quite beautiful really (laughs) it's sort of started as um, I mean I ran a pledge campaign which was a short term crowdfunding campaign um, about four years ago to kind of get my first EP off the ground before I was signed and um, and then I was in this position where I had all these people who had signed up for this campaign who were now still interested in my work. And at the time, I was struggling a great deal financially. I was in between um, my, my second job, my big job. 
and um, and I wasn't working as full-time freelance at the time. And so I, I basically just kind of reached out to that community that had grown up around that first campaign and I said, would you be interested in me creating projects for you? And then you pay me on a rolling monthly basis to deliver them. And um, and about, I think about 12 people piped up mm-hmm. and said, yes, we would be interested in that. And so that's, that's how that began and it's, it's expanded now. And um, And so I get, paid a monthly amount and people can decide how much they want to pay some people um obviously patreon is an american platform so unfortunately it's in dollars um but people can either pay a dollar or up to 20 dollars a month and they get different packages they get different exclusives um and different levels of access according to um how much they pay for and it's been brilliant because what it's actually become is as as the four years have passed and we've dialogued as a group around each project that I've created and not all the projects came to fruition that's the other thing was that we'd sometimes I'd start a project and we talk about it and we get to a point where we get stuck and I'd be like oh that project can't progress Mm. so we're going to put that project down and so as time passed we basically created a focus group so it's now not just I'm bringing a project and this is what I'm doing and you're going to pay for it it's I've got these ideas for projects. What do you think? And then we talk about it and we evolve it together a little bit. And then I go away and I work on it and I bring it back and I'm like, right, it's at this stage now. And then I get some more input from everybody and a few ideas. And, and so it's basically become like a lot, nice, big, creative, rolling discussion. Um, and I try to create as much interesting stuff for them as I possibly can. Um, and so when I came to them with Pop Not Pop, and I was like, what do you think of this? Everyone was like, ooh, yeah. So, and that's brilliant. Cause basically what you've got is a gang behind you at all times, which is effectively what your fan base, you hope your fan base would be. Um, and they're, and they believe in you and they're willing to put their money where their mouth is. And that is just a constant source of inspiration and support and gratitude as far as I'm concerned Mm. so it really took the doors off everything that I thought might be possible for my career moving forward um and that was especially valuable when I was when I was dropped by my label because I was sort of there going I basically had to go to them and go hey guys uh this has happened I don't know what to do Mm. and we kind of just we just talked about it and so they were like, oh, well, that's rubbish. Um, okay, well, we'll keep talking. You have a think about it. And whatever you decide to do, we'll be here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's, I can't tell you as, a, as an artist how phenomenal it is to have that base. It yeah. really does just change everything. It's incredible. It's great that you've got that resource there and um, amazing for sort of independent artists, like you said. Mm. And um, just so we can get a little bit of an idea about your music, I know your album isn't ready yet, but let's play a little bit of um, Liminal, um, just so we Mm -hmm. can get an idea of your sound. Can you? 
excellent dancing in the video, may I say as well. Thank you very much. <laughs> so that was shot at um, the Glory in London with an all LGBTQ cast. Woo, easy for me to say. And excellent dance <laughs> scenes, obviously. So um, what Thank was that experience you. like? It looked like a lot of fun, this video. It was. It was a bit, it was kind of wild, actually, shooting that video. Mm. Um, for two reasons, really. One, well, firstly, actually, because uh, the Glory don't actually let everybody who applies to shoot in their premises actually shoot there. We were very lucky to get it. Um, and it was a 12, but we only had it for a day. It was a 12-hour shoot. So we had to pack a hell of a lot in. Right. Yeah. And, yeah, and I mean, I have I have an amazing team of, of creative people uh, around me and attached to Rooks um, kind of as a, as a rolling brand. And um, so I was working with Marshall Mowbray, who um, was director of photography on my last music video for my first EP. Um, and I said to him, do you want to do this one? And... He said, yeah, I'd absolutely love to. But what he really is, is he's created co-director with me because he's just so brilliant at translating my ideas into visual medium in a way that I just couldn't possibly hope to achieve. So mm. I hope to work with him for as long as I can. Um, but yeah, but that was the first one. But also because it was very, it was kind of ambitious for us to really try to get an all-queer cast. The fact that we managed it was mind-blowing because there are so few projects out there, especially music video projects, who that are able to achieve that um so we've kind of scouted and you know and approached and and got the right people on board and, and happily the you know a, a lot of the people in the room were friends were mm. people who actually go to the glory <laughs> yeah just to you know just to hang out it's a real kind of uh epicenter for queer talent and um, and queer nightlife and so some people I'd actually, who were in the video I'd actually met on the premises um, and so that was it made it very special because you know community for the LGBTQ um, kind of scene is so essential you know because it's it's like your chosen family and so many queer people have terrible experiences of family rejection um, so it really did make for quite a fantastic atmosphere and also a lot of the people in my video my friends are very hot so it was very you know basically a huge room of hot and talented people yes. doing what they do best which was kind of very intense and joyful all yeah. day oh it's um, fabulous and it's great to have yeah. that authenticity yeah. as well it's not a gimmick they're not dressing up or extras that you've paid you know to act a certain yeah. way or you know pretend yeah. they're getting on so I think it's great well, we, we were actually in a great position because um, I was able to budget so that um, on the run-up to the shoot, so we were able to pay the principal characters, the characters who had to learn the dance routines. And we spent an entire day in rehearsal before the shoot to make sure that everything hit the mark correctly. Mm. Um, so so the, the principal cast and the team, the technical team, were all kind of able to be paid. And I think for the arts in particular, that's a big deal because so many of us end up doing skill swaps and things like that because there isn't enough money for the arts in general um, available easily. Um, but actually to be in a position to actually be able to pay everybody was, was fantastic um, and something that I'd like to very much keep doing. Mm, yeah, of course. <laughs> um, but, uh, but you're right. Like There were a lot of my friends, my housemates as well, uh, were in, in the crowd. Um, and uh, and the two uh, lead queens that, who flank me um, during the course of the video were, were good friends and it was great to be able to give them work as well. Um, so, yeah, so it was 
it really was brilliant. Just one of the best things I feel like I've ever made. <laughs> yeah, and you won them over through dance. Is how we should resolve all problems from now on, perhaps. Absolutely, Virtually, I'm though, so with course. you on that. Yes, <laughs> yes. Just dance, dance your problems away. Yeah. Honestly, you know, people say sometimes sex solves all problems. No, I think it's probably dance. Mm. To be honest. Maybe we all need a routine, though. I don't think we should all freestyle. Might not have good results or win any arguments. <laughs> I think it depends on how much conviction you put into the freestyle, honestly. Or how much you've had to drink. Potentially a potent blend of the two yes. would be ideal. Yeah. I know the more and more I drink and some of my friends, the more and more we're convinced we can dance like Beyonce. Uh, I have a feeling it's not true, but that's what we believe. <laughs> Oh, my gosh. Actually, you know what? One of the best things I ever saw was um, a former colleague of mine who's, who's a playwright. Um, we were on a kind of a, a girls' night out. And um, and in the middle of this, uh, someone put on um, Britney Spears. I think he was Spears, so I did it again. Yep. And she jumped up and she knew every single dance <laughs> move from that video. Amazing. It was amazing. No, like, just so completely unexpected and she did it with so much conviction like she was looking us in the eye wow and we were like whoa that's a muscle memory that is she's been practicing that for years <laughs> so you're obviously um hugely of course into um, music production so when you actually sort of approach I guess just building a song and writing no building a song let's let's go with that where do you start with that well this is part of what pop not pop covers because um every song is is divided into two episodes and the front, the front end is the songwriting the kind of origin story and the lyrical content and the second half is the production um and that's because usually it is that way around like i'm i mean i think it's best to say that i was i've been writing um for so long now i'm, I'm obsessed with lyrics i'm obsessed with poetry i'm obsessed with words i'm a i was an avid bookworm as a child um like many quirks and uh, just disappeared headfirst into into books whenever I could and so I write lyrics every day that's a that's a daily discipline that didn't necessarily evolve out of any kind of intentionality it's just what's happened so I have this pool of lyrics that I pull from anytime I want to create a song and that's an incredible resource to always have access to um, so I think it's kind of the thing that has really enabled me to become the songwriter that I am now. And so it usually starts with like a couple of lines that are rolling around in my head that I've written down and they just don't seem to be going away. But the flip side of it is the fact that honest, I, I'm a big believer in trusting your brain subconscious to do a lot of the creative work for you. And so sometimes I, I tend to wake up humming pop hooks and then I hum them very indelicately into my phone. Sometimes I can't quite figure out what I was reaching for because I'm so out of tune at that time in the morning. But it's so it's entertaining, if nothing else. But um, it's some, when I start getting those little hooks kind of appearing regularly, that's usually my brain's way of telling me it's time to write a song now. So I will sit down, I'll look at the lyrics and sometimes I'll go back into those voice notes and seek out the hook that fits. Um, or sometimes I'll look at the lyrics and I'll just improvise singing and see what happens. Um, and that then dictates the key and the chord structure. Um, and then I will just, um, I tend to use uh, Roly's gear um, 
I actually very got very deep into their noise app, which allows you to kind of create, um, basically create loops. Mm-hmm. And those loops can be between kind of one and eight bars long. And um, the average kind of pop song, verse and chorus tend to be between four and eight bars. So I create like chunks of the song through that app um, and then kind of and improvising those melodies with the lyrics that I've come up with. Um, and then it kind of slowly starts to pull together. Usually it's a verse first. It's rare that I come up with a chorus first, but sometimes it happens. Mm. Um, but sometimes it's just to do with like when I'm when I'm kind of writing these bits of lyrics, usually it's like a line, two lines, three lines at a time. There's usually a theme going on. There's something that my brain is subconsciously reaching for. So I'll often find that they group together quite well in terms of themes. I mean, sometimes you'll get an anomaly and you're just like, I don't know what the heck I was, I don't know where that came from or what that relates to. Never mind. <laughs> Moving on. Um, but, but often the lyrics are flexible enough that you can sometimes find something you wrote about one situation and then another lyric that you wrote about another one and find that they kind of actually fit together if you, if you can let go of the context of both of them. So it's, it's very much a, a very, pl- it's a very playful method. Like, there's not, like, a sense of I'm going to sit down and write a song and it's going to be from scratch. Like, for me, I don't think I've ever written a song from scratch in my life that's been a good song. Mm-hmm. It's usually, it's got a, a starting point that has already been brewing, like, percolating in my brain for a little while. Okay. And you said, you mentioned Roly earlier as well. So, key to developing your tracks is their MPE technology. So, um, what do you like about using this and how does it, um, help you with your workflow why is it essential for you to be honest I mean I got access to the gear because I did some consultancy work for them mm. and um, and there there really are a, an amazing company um, and one of the things that I was just blown away by is just the flexibility of the hardware and the software together because I mean one of the things that you know when you're when you're kind of in music production um, one of the things that you end up doing often is you record a track and then you tweak um, aspects of the track or elements of the track through automation, basically graph, mm-hmm. where you tweak either the digital data <coughs> to increase or decrease volume or velocity or whatever. It takes a long time. Um, but what Roly technology allows is because it's all this, most of it is designed with sensors underneath and silicon on top, which enables you to not just kind of have the normal binary and say like a piano where you, you, it's like on or off. You're either hitting the note or you're not. Mm-hmm. You might be able to hit it a bit softly and get a different effect, but, um, but the silicon surface allows you to press into it. Um, so you can do things like you can increase and decrease velocity by just pressing into the surface. You can pitch bend the note. Um, like, like a guitar, you can, it's like you can pitch bend a piano preset. That's insane. Mm. Um, and you can, you know, increase, decrease the volume depending on the preset. There's a lot of dynamics. So basically you can program it straight away just by touching the controller rather than having to plot it all out afterwards. So it cuts your production time in half. Um, so that's the first thing. It's extraordinarily efficient. Um, but also the preset and the scope of being able to shape the sound just by touch is kind of mind-blowing. And it's also quite interesting because even though Rolly's um, technology evolved around the seaboard, which has the same layout and kind of construction as a keyboard, 
Um, I actually find in my experience that it's guitarists that get on better with the technology than pianists do because they understand how to shape and bend notes. Um, so they understand that they can kind of basically slide between the notes or, mm-hmm. or slide across the surface in a way that pianists find quite tricky to master. Um, and they get frustrated because they're like, this isn't behaving like a piano, whereas guitarists tend to just accept it as it is. Um, it's not across the board. I know a lot of pianists who are amazing on keyboards. And, you know, um, there are a couple of rolling demonstrators um, like Keen, uh, Keen Wah and the Parisi brothers who are exceptional and they came from a pianist background. But um, but by and large, I've found that it's been my guitar chops that have actually really helped me to explore that technology to and really push it and really not necessarily be so concerned about hitting like a certain level of, of virtuoso kind of playing rather than using it as an exploration technique for making whatever the music I make mm-hmm. as interesting sounding as possible because that's something I love. I love it when tracks get weird. Yeah. Weird is is fun. Weird is exploration, is evolution, is flexibility. So I always want it to sound just that little bit different and the rolly kind of gear and software is just perfect for those purposes. And you said, um, losing my voice, ironically, you're the one that's doing all the wonderful speaking. Um, <laughs> your most used plugin is um, Roly Studio Player, and you said it's basically three MPE plugins rolled into one. So, um, how yeah. has this helped you on your workflow as well? Well, I mean, I, I think one of the things that I've always found a little bit frustrating about producing music myself is how how difficult it is sometimes to find the sound you want. Um, like you have, sometimes you can spend like five hours just plowing through kick samples trying to find the right kick. Mm. And to me, that's not an efficient, I'm, I'm very, I'm a big fan of efficiency. Um, that's not an efficient way for me to spend my time. Um, so what I love about Rolly Studio Player is the fact that the, the presets are very high quality and very flexible. And it's the thing about, studio player is that you've got the the three like the bulk of the presets from three of the main um synth engines that Roly provides. Um one is Equator which has always been Roly's main synth engine and the other two are Strobe Two and Cypher Two which they um bought through F expansion. And those they're all phenomenal preset quality. Like all of the presets are really interesting the only downside is that if you go into equator as a standalone synth engine you can manipulate the parameters a lot better but even within Roly studio player you can still you can whack it through four different filters you can put it through three kinds of arpeggiation arpeggiation i never say that right you know what i mean um up three you can create three kind of rounds of arpeggiators for the same preset mm. you can Really, you've just so much to to mess with and to play with to basically stretch the potential of each preset sound, and it's all in the same place. So I don't have to basically load throw in a load of extra plugins. It's all in the same kit. Mm. Um, so in terms of um, cranking out new and fresh and interesting synth sounds, 
it's just it's just perfect it enables me to kind of jump into it and create like four basically unique sounding synth presets for one logic project um and i just i love the efficiency and the, and the creativity of that and we're always interested in you know headphones that producers are wearing you've got audio technica in ears haven't you yes honestly they're they're just I, i'm a big fan of audio technica actually i also have um their uh condenser mic here that i use for um for my top lines mm. and like again just another like I, they're just a company that are really obsessive about detail and but still create very affordable gear so yeah do love them they're great and um i know you're working on your album at the moment is that kind of um what's happening for you in the near future that's what you're going to be focusing on and you know working on during lockdown and beyond oh yeah I mean, the the fun part, really. I mean, <laughs> I always think, oh, this is hard work, but then the next leg is always going to be the more the, where the real work starts. Um, but yes, we we are going to be running Pop Not Pop episodes until I think the end of July. Mm-hmm. I think is where it stretches because that will cover all twelve tracks plus intro and a, and an AMA episode, um, which is the next one that I'm actually shooting probably this afternoon, actually. Mm, okay. Um, I know. Very, it's very imminent. I think one of the things that I don't think people realize about Pop Not Pop is everything is really happening in real time <laughs> in the series. Okay. It's well. like the production episodes. I literally have been working on that production that week. Like it's, and then I shoot it the next day. Like it, it is all very much in the moment. Like mm. I don't prep these episodes like three or four weeks in advance. They're literally, they're very much happening in the flow of, of the record making. Mm. Um, so yeah, I think I need to talk about that a little bit more. So never mind. Um, just in general to people, because I think that that's something that gets missed a little bit. Yeah, it's um, quite nice that the audience is with you, whether they know it or not. You know, this really is you yeah. in the midst of the process. This is where you're up to. So it's quite an interesting Pretty way much. to work on an album, I suppose, isn't it? It is. Yeah. I mean, for me, that's part of the thrill of it. So um, yeah. So I'll be finishing the album. We've then got the month of well timeline allowing it's going to be a bit interesting because some of this is dependent on whether we can get more funding to keep the project pushing forward mm. um because obviously with a bigger, bigger budget we can do a lot more um and then we'll be mixing and mastering we'll be hiring the great katie tavini who works on liminal with me to master it oh i love um, katie oh she's a legend um she and i actually recently co-founded a um a network for um women and non-binary music studio talent that's called two percent rising oh nice um yeah yeah it's great we've got just under 150 members now on facebook i think excellent and it's yeah it's been really terrific but she's she's an absolute don and she's just so technically brilliant as a mastering engineer so i wouldn't at this stage i wouldn't really want to work with anybody else Mm. um so she'll be mastering it and then we will be basically depending on obviously how whether lockdown is like what the effects of it are we will be figuring out how to market and and distribute and release the album. Um, obviously, I hope to God at some point I'll be back to playing live shows in actual live venues, but for now we don't know when that will be. So we'll have to be planning a digital release and, and kind of hoping for the best at that point. But um, I am kind of dying for people to get their hands on these tracks when they're finished um, because for me it's been one of the most exciting kind of, creative production-based experiences I've ever had 
but also um, we're launching um, Brooks Production Services as as an actual service that people can hire. Um, so really, once kind of the album is is out into the world, it's it's very much a portfolio for what I can do. Yeah. And uh, and I really want to work with more artists, um, kind of producing for them and collaborating with them on their records. So we'll be kind of pushing more in that direction as well because that kind of feels like the next great adventure. Like working for myself and doing my own music is is terrific, but um, but I'm very used to doing that, and it's not really it's for me that's the comfortable space. That's not necessarily boundary pushing, and I feel like it would be it's so much more exciting sometimes to work on other people's projects. Mm. So yeah. Okay. Well, we very much look forward to seeing what you're up to, and we'll keep up with your video series. So um, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today on Headliner Radio. Really appreciate it. And it's been, you know, a really great discussion. Loved all the topics we covered and we went very deep, which I love. <laughs> great. No, I really enjoyed it. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, you're welcome. Anytime. Um, okay, so hopefully see you soon in future, maybe in person one day. What a novelty that will be. <laughs> Actually, you can see me in person this Saturday on Twitch, if you wish. Ah. I will be, uh, yes, indeed. Um, if you go to uh, the Twitch um, channel of the drag queen Wanda Whatever, who featured in the liminal video, mm-hmm. um, she will be putting on three hours of queer talent um, where people, Lingerie is an event that Wanda has been running for some time, which enables um, queer artists of all, of all descriptions to bring new work to, um, to kind of try it out on a, on a, kind of fair and kind audience so she's hosting an online boulangerie where everyone's bringing a five minute so i will be actually performing one of the songs from pop not pop which is called paint and um and performing that live essentially from my house and um and you can get on twitch and watch excellent plug okay thank you very much for the tip that's okay (laughs) all right hopefully talk to you soon then and have a great day thanks very much alice take care okay bye Headliner Radio, supporting the creative community.